Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle, Deputy Chief Economist at Aberdeen, and today we are talking about the energy transition. It's a topic we have tackled a couple of times before on the podcast, but we're specifically going to focus on the energy transition in the Asia-Pacific region in this episode. And that's because the region is a crucial battleground in the world's fight to decarbonize, with many large emitters based there, and it's also a region replete with opportunities and challenges as part of that transition. So joining me in this discussion are Jeremy Lawson, our Chief Economist, and Anna Moss, our Climate Change Scenario Analyst. And Jeremy and Anna have recently authored a paper on exactly this topic, so it's going to be great to get into it with them. So Jeremy, let's start with you. Uh, Perhaps you could start by laying out why the Asia-Pacific region matters so much in the fight against climate change and the transition to clean energy. So I think the simplest way to put it is that in the last 20 years, almost all of the net increase in global emissions has come from the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, That's because you have reductions in emissions in the United States, Europe, some other advanced economies, and modest increases in places like Latin America, Middle East, and Africa. Um, but they're broadly offsetting. So almost all of the aggregate increase, and you've got two of the three world's largest emitters are based in the region, uh, China and India, and then, as you say, other very large emitters like Indonesia. And so there can be no energy transition unless there's an energy transition in the APAC region. Any chances of holding temperature increases to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels rest on rapid decarbonisation in the Asia-Pacific. And in fact, one of the really important reasons why we don't think that that type of pathway is likely, and even a below two degree pathway is going to be hard to achieve, is because the Asia-Pacific region in aggregate and almost all of the major countries within it are not on net zero trajectories themselves. Brilliant. And APAC is, of course, a very big region, very heterogeneous in terms of the stage of development, climate policy in in individual countries. Could you give us a sense of some of that heterogeneity, that difference across countries? Well, exactly. So, so think about it through the prism of net zero targets themselves. So we have everything from net zero 2050 targets in places like Australia, Japan, South Korea. Um, then you have a number of countries like China has got a net zero 2060 objective. India's is net zero 2070. So government's very clearly signaling different, different policy pathways. Um, You have some of the wealthiest countries in the world in the region and still some of the poorest, um, particularly if you sort of expand to include the Pacific Islands, but also parts of Southeast Asia um, and and parts of Southern uh, parts of Southern Asia. Uh, The credibility of policy varies significantly. Funnily enough, China is actually the only country that really has a national carbon pricing regime in place through its emissions trading scheme, whereas actually the advanced economies who look like they have more aggressive climate targets have actually not managed to put those types of instruments in place. So actually the credibility of their objectives is even more under question. And so it becomes very, very important to take these types of variation into account, manufacturing shares of GDP, 
um, renewable energy intensity of the energy system, uh, all these sort of things into account when sort of considering the nature of the risks and opportunities that are going to be facing investors looking to get exposure within the region. So Anna, you're very closely involved in the climate scenario modelling work that you and Jeremy have undertaken. And this is a quantitative framework that we've applied to APAC, but also globally to understand different paths for climate change, the energy transition, the fortunes of individual sectors and companies. Can you tell us a bit more about the modelling framework? How does it work? What have we done with the modelling? Yeah, so we're about to commence what will be our third year of climate scenario analysis. And I'd say that that really reflects the the importance that we place on the potential insights that this type of analysis really can provide to us. And I'd say that also our unique approach to that analysis also emphasises that commitment, um, because rather than relying on publicly available tools um, uh, and simply relying on off-the-shelf scenarios, which can typically have more simplistic assumptions that are built into um, that they're built upon Um, and instead we've created our own bespoke scenarios and this allows us to input our sectoral and critically here our regional uh, insights and and research and this means that we can create um, these more plausible scenarios where regions and sectors uh, are able to vary within the global pathway. Um, So um, as Jeremy has illustrated in his outlining of the importance of the APAC region, there are distinct and important characteristics between regions and between countries in those regions. Um, And it's important for scenario analysis to be able to reflect these. So our approach means that, for example, uh, we can reflect China's, uh, that China's expanded policy commitments mean it's likely uh, to decarbonize more quickly than the, the average across emerging markets, or um, how the policy ambition and the timescales um, of that ambition for countries like Japan, Australia, for example, are significantly condif- uh, different to those of, um, of Thailand and India, for example. Um, but as, as Jeremy pointed out, of course, we need to also the credibility of, of all those targets. Um, I'd say as well, in terms of the, the simple off-the-shelf approaches, these tend to focus on, if you like, a kind of stress testing um, approach to climate scenario analysis. So that means that they're concentrating on more detailed risks. And this will flag up the major risks and, and potential opportunities, but it doesn't allow you to consider what would be the more likely impacts of, of climate change. So instead, um, we've, uh, we have a large suite of scenarios and to that we apply probabilities and that then provides us with a really good depth as well as the breadth. So this allows us to explore um, the differing imp- impacts of um for example, limiting warming to below degree, two degrees, um, more ambitious scenarios uh, that are critically aiming for the, the 1.5 degrees, the hothouse world type views um, of a continuation of, of where, where basically current policy fails to scale up, um, and also the varying in degrees in between, um, including our, our current view um, that is, is, um, that the likely figure is, is around 2.2 degrees in terms of, um, of global warming. 
Brilliant. So we've got this set of bespoke climate scenarios and our model takes into account alternative paths for climate change, the energy transition, emissions, the global temperature rise and gives us impairments of individual sectors and companies that we might invest in. Jeremy, could you bring to life a little bit what the average scenario looks like? So there's the 2.2 degree temperature rise, but what else do we have in terms of technological path or regulatory path? Bring this to life for us. Yeah, sure. So I think it's very important for the listeners to understand how this framework is built. We have a baseline scenario, uh, which really reflects what we think is priced into assets today across geographies and sectors. Um, and this is a really important starting point for investing because any investor always has to begin with the question of what is in the price of assets. Then what we do is we say we build this array of scenarios um, which we think are more likely, more plausible because they build in technology and variation across technology and policy variation across sectors and geographies. And then the mean, the probability weighted mean that we generate as a result then that dictates the extent of the impairment that different securities are exposed to. And this is going to generate very different results um, than what a standard scenario analytical framework will sort of generate. So let me give a couple of examples. We're able to build in the fact that, for example, the European power sector is decarbonizing more quickly than the power sector in the typical emerging Asian economy. And it's gonna matter a lot because implicitly that means that the carbon price trajectory in Europe in the power sector is going to be higher than it is going to be in emerging Asia. That's also therefore going to significantly influence the after-tax earning streams of companies differently. So all these things are going to matter quite a lot in terms of what does the demand for products look like, what does the carbon price sort of trajectory look like, how was the ability of companies to pass on changes in carbon prices. So effectively in this model, carbon pricing closes the system. Right? It effectively generates a pathway that ensures that emissions drop in line with the overall sort of temperature um, or emissions sort of trajectory. Um, and, and again, if we think about some of the key inputs around, for example, electrical vehicle penetration, or when does global oil demand peak, or how much coal is used in the future, each of these things is going to look a lot different in our mean scenario than they do in those extreme tail scenarios. So there's going to be a lot more fossil fuels used in our mean scenario than in a one and a half degree or a below two degree world. However, there's going to be a lot less used than in a current policy world. So as I say, most investors, when they engage with scenario analysis, they're going to get these tail risks. They're very widely available. They're commonly used. I just can't emphasize enough. Um, ultimately, assets will be dictated by what happens in the real world, not in highly stylized scenarios that reflect sort of tail probabilities that are very unlikely. And so our the unique part of our framework is the ability to build that in as a feature and so we're looking, for example, at well, how is BHP Billiton affected by the energy transition? Our framework will generate a very different impact than what other frameworks will. Brilliant. And one of the findings of the modelling, Jeremy, is that the typical aggregate equity market impairment from the, the transition is often quite small. There are lots of winners and losers, but you find in aggregate, they largely net out at a global level. But that's yeah. not the case in APAC, is it? Especially not for 
some specific countries, say like India, where you find pretty large aggregate impairments. So tell us what it is about Asia-Pacific equity markets that mean that you actually get some pretty big aggregate impairments from the, the energy transition you're envisaging. I think the simplest way to explain it is that if you look at, say, equity indices across the Asia-Pacific region, for the most part, they have larger concentrations in the sectors that are negatively affected under the transition scenario we have in mind. So, for example, energy, materials, consumer discretionary, each of these are sectors that on average is negatively impaired in our mean scenario. And so naturally, if those sectors have got a larger weight in the indices, that will drag the aggregate down. In India's case, for example, a very significant weight to materials, but materials that are in some sense brown rather than green materials. And so that has a negative effect on the aggregate results. But it is still very important to recognise that even though it's true that the index level effects are a little bit larger on average across Asia and across emerging economies than in the major advanced economies, um, uh, that it's still the case that dispersion of, um, of impacts, of fair valuation impacts, is predominantly a security level phenomenon. Right? So, so knowing what country a firm is in, knowing what sector even a firm is, is, is in tells you relatively little about the true exposures, the different types of climate risk and opportunity. And that's the great insight, of course, of, of the framework you've built. It allows you to think about individual companies and their exposure to the energy transition, which, as you say, Jeremy, varies considerably. And Anna, so a potentially surprising result of your modelling work within APAC specifically is that Chinese indices actually have quite a low negative exposure to the energy transition. Could you explain why that is? Yeah, so as you say, it is it is quite a surprising result given the, the carbon intensity of the, the Chinese economy. Um, one of the reasons for this is that some of the country's most fossil fuel intensive firms are actually non-listed state-owned enterprises. And that means that the energy sector, which um, is the most negatively impacted sector actually has a very small weight in the in the aggregate index as, as Jeremy pointed out it's quite critical that the, the weight of these sectors within their indices and that results in therefore a smaller sectoral drag um, on valuation for China in comparison to, to some of these other markets but also as, as Jeremy pointed out this important of the dispersion within a sector and whilst the the over, whilst overall the energy sector is very negatively exposed, there's still many firms which do show significant uplift um, in, in valuation in our mean scenario. And some of these are actually coal producers based in China, which, which again is, is perhaps surprising to people. And that's because coal remains a dominant fuel type in China under continuation of current policy and even in the more sort of stricter and, and early action scenarios, the projected role for coal actually remains a dominant figure for the dominant um, um, figure in terms of um, um, fuel types for much longer in China can, compared to, to other regions. And if you add to that um, the issue around carbon pricing, so as Jeremy pointed out, you know. Um, Although they do have this uh, carbon price uh, pricing scheme in, in, in place, um, 
it is projected, the price is still projected to remain pretty low in China across our scenario suite. So those coal producers in the region have the potential to benefit from the continuing demand, whilst at the same time, their regional peers uh, are potentially going to be hit by, by higher carbon prices. Um, and along with the, the dwindling demand that they would face, that would see them exiting um, exiting the market sooner. Um, so although those, car those coal producers do see um, large downturn in net zero scenarios, the uplift from these other scenarios is enough to, to pull through um, a positive um, result in the mean scenario. Um, great, great. And it's just a, can I just, Paul, just add a couple of things to that that are probably worth, yeah, you know, will, will help people sort of understand even more. Um, in any sort of asset pricing framework, you always have a discounting mechanism taking place, right? And so, so the further out the change in earnings occurs, generally, well, you know, the, the less weight it has in the valuation. Because in emerging economies, including in China, um, a lot of the policy action, the most aggressive policy actions projected to take place, say, after 2030, the biggest negative effects on fossil fuel usage are occurring in periods that are going to be more heavily discounted within the framework. So another way of thinking about that is if we rolled this all forward 10 years and we were doing the analysis, then those same companies might look quite poorly if they still had the same structure reliance on coal. The other one there is a sector element as well, is that the Chinese power sector um, is definitely on a decarbonisation pathway, but a lot of coal is used in the industry sector in China. Um, and industry is the sector, it was one of the sectors that we think is going to decarbonise much more slowly, in part because alternative technologies aren't available. And then the sheer growth rate of China can sort of create sort of still healthy demand for coal through that particular channel. So again, it's the real importance of taking these nuances into account rather than sort of say, coal bad, renewables good. It's much more complex than that in terms of modeling. Great. And Anna, another nuance then is that individual firms can actually take measures to limit their impairment through the energy transition, can't they? So they can, they can move to net zero, they can set carbon targets. Can you tell us about the sort of measures firms might take that would mean they 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 can do well during, through the energy transition. Yeah, so I guess the the measures really fall into two broad categories. So limiting rising costs from their emissions and also reducing the risk of of losing market share as demand for their products and, and services declines. So so changing um how their um um, the products changing the actual products that they're producing. I'd say the most common measures fall into that first category with companies announcing commitments to reduce emissions. So basically as, as the carbon prices rise, they can um, improve their position relative to competitors by, by basically reducing their costs. Um, but also there are companies that are, are announcing targets to adjust their revenue splits to move away from their high carbon products and increase production of, of low carbon products so so that they're not disadvantaged by those those changing demand um, dynamics um, and the auto but, industry might be an example of that yeah yeah i'd say definitely the the auto the industry is is a is a important one to to bring in there and and really that's um um so if you consider in terms of the the changing in, in the the revenue 
um, split particularly there. You're seeing auto companies uh, announcing uh, their commitment to to change um, their, their split much more favorably towards electric vehicles. Um, I'd say a lot of the time that the devil can really be in the detail. So there can be considerable variation between companies, not just in terms of ambition, but also in terms of the, the type of emissions that they're including within those targets. Um, and also in terms of whether they're considering um, the milestones that they'll need to achieve um, achieve those, those targets. Um, so if we, look back at, um, if you consider our analysis, so our climate scenario analysis, um, although the, the policy and technology pathways are, um, under, underpin it um, are forward-looking, we are working now to, to introduce a way to uh, incorporate the kind of dynamic responses that individual companies are also likely to make. So we're exploring how to integrate those company level targets um, into the modeling. Um, but we really do need to consider this, this credibility issue. So just as we consider the credibility of targets at, at country levels, um, we also need to consider the credibility of those targets being announced by companies. So for that reason, we're also developing um, a credibility framework in-house that can consider um, the, the track record in terms of decarbonisation of these companies, how detailed the targets are and whether these, they have these milestones um, to, to transition, um, whether they're operating in, in, um, in, in jurisdictions where the policy and, and the regulations are perhaps likely to hinder their plans. And also really crucially, this, this issue that, that Jeremy touched on earlier about the viability of the technologies that are actually needed to aid their transition. Because a lot, um, um, a lot of the, the, the technological developments that are going to be needed to achieve net zero um, in, in, across most sectors are yet to actually be proven at scale. And in many cases, they've not even made it to market yet. So if you consider... Um, going back to your question about the um, about autos, so that's a sector where even where we have proven technology, we're already seeing companies falling short of the targets that, that they've set. And the majority of the world's car makers are already lagging behind with regard to the necessary switch to electric vehicles. Great. So credibility is absolutely key when assessing and, individual and again. Companies. And again, sort of emphasise how unique this is because it's already the case in our standard work we're able to take into account policy variation across sectors and geographies and technology variation way that other frameworks don't. But now our ability to take into account dynamic corporate strategies with a layer of credibility will take this work to the next sort of stage and the next level. So it really needs to be thought of as an innovation that makes it even more relevant to investment decision-making than the framework already was and takes a long way beyond the, sort of the standard risk-based assessments that are, that are mostly sort of prevailing in the industry. Great. And Jeremy, tell us how, how we're incorporating this into investment decision-making. Ultimately, how are our portfolio managers changing their decisions using this research, this great modelling framework that you and Anna have developed? 
Yes, yeah, so it's very important to emphasize that the modeling, the analysis does not dictate any investment decision. Um, it's a model. Uh, Paul, you're very familiar with the strengths and weaknesses of different models. They're mm -hmm. a representation of the world, but never a perfect one. And we want to really emphasize that there are things that are going to be influencing asset prices over different frameworks, including the energy transition that you can never sort of fully capture in a single framework. But what it is being used for in, in large parts of the business is, is like a think of it as a, as a screen, as an input into decision-making, helps people sort of understand, well, okay, so how exposed might this firm be? Um, how does that weigh against other things that might be influencing you know, the company? How should I think about long-term value compared to short-term value? Um, maybe it can be used in the way or it's being used in the way we engage with companies. So a lot of corporates themselves do scenario analysis, but some of them cherry pick those scenarios to represent favorable futures and say, hey, we're already on the right track. We don't need to do anything. But when we're armed with our own analysis, we can say, well, actually, when you look at it this way, your exposure looks a bit different. How are you, you know, how are you counteracting that? So it's sort of, it's, uh, I sort of see it as like any sort of good model as a way to make better decisions, to influence them, not dictate and make sure that um, we've just got a better way of capturing, of avoiding risk capturing opportunity alongside the other things that can influence the value of companies and the and the way that we make investment decisions over short, medium and long-term timeframes. Anna, Jeremy, thank you both for a fascinating set of insights. The full report on the energy transition in Asia Pacific and how we are using it in our in our modeling, in our stock selection, portfolio construction and company engagement can be found on Aberdeen's website and we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Thank you to you for listening to Macro Bytes. We'd love you to give a like or subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. But until next time, goodbye and good luck out there. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.